Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I have quite a few announcements for you this morning. The first one, I want to give you guys an update, and we're going to try to do this over the course of the next year throughout this building process. But who wants a building update? Anybody? All right, a few of you. All right, let's go. Uh, we got some more information. We have the signs up. If you've driven down Hickory Fork Road recently, you've seen we've got our coming soon sign. Coastal Church right there on the property. And if you keep looking, you'll see the ground is indeed broken. Uh, these guys have been down there working. Uh, it's starting to look really great. And it's just really exciting to see people down there working finally. So it's a really exciting journey. We're going to try to give you guys updates as we go along. So uh, this is exciting stuff. That's something to celebrate. Am I right? I mean, they're working on the property. It's been a long journey but we're so excited. So keep this in your prayers, guys. Keep praying that this can move quickly. Keep praying that we can stay within our budget. Uh, those are two huge prayer points. And uh, so keep praying for this building project. I wanna let you know about Wave Camp coming up at the end of June. It's gonna be June 27th through July 1st, grades one through five. This is gonna be an awesome time. I would love for you guys all to send your kids to Wave Camp. Uh, there's gonna be a great time in the word, a lot of games, field trips. It's gonna be awesome. So I would really encourage you if you're interested in sending your child or just getting more info, gocoastal.org slash summer events. We have our We Are Coastal class coming up this Saturday. Our We Are Coastal is our on-ramp to membership class. It is this Saturday right here at Coastal Gloucester from 5 to 8.30. I know that's a long time, but both dinner and childcare are provided. Uh, this class is where you get all the information that you need to get about Coastal in order to make a decision about membership. So you're going to learn what we believe, how we function, and how you can get involved at Coastal. So if you're interested, please, please, please sign up. It's a huge help for us uh, in terms of food and child care. You can register online, go coastal.org slash membership, or you can write it on your connect card to let us know you're coming. We've got our Women of Coastal Brunch also coming up this Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. So ladies, come on out this Saturday for some good food, for some good fellowship, and for a time in the word of God together. Finally, I want to take a second to honor any graduates. So do we have any graduates in the room? High school, college, middle school, I'll take any of it. Any graduates today? Oh, yeah, all right. He was trying to hide it, too. Got called out. Anybody else? Any other graduates in the house? Awesome. Well, listen, we are so proud of you. Uh, congratulations. Uh, and so I wanted to take a second. We're doing this all across Coastal. We want to take a second and pray uh, for those who are moving on in graduation. This is also our promotion Sunday. Some of you parents might have noticed that also with, with children's and student ministry. So uh, let's take a second and let's pray for the sermon and let's pray for our graduates together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to spend time together as your church family, to spend time in the word. And Father, I wanna thank you for our graduates, Lord, all across Coastal. Lord, I wanna pray, God, for wisdom, moving on to the next stage of life, Father. We live in a crazy world. We live in a broken world, Lord. And so I pray for wisdom. I pray that our graduates, Lord, would be firmly grounded and, and rooted in their faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, and equipped to withstand the assaults of the world. And I pray that they would be bright and shining lights for Jesus Christ wherever they go. And so, Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would use it to convict us, to challenge us, to make us more and more like Jesus this morning. Father, we love you. Let your Holy Spirit come now and work in our hearts as we study your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
James chapter one. This morning, we're gonna look at just two verses together. James 1, 26 and 27. I wanna talk to you about a word that people hate. Uh, this is a word that in my experience, people really, at least really don't like, both inside the church and outside the church. That word is religion. That's not a popular word anymore. You know, inside the church, since I was a little kid, there's a little Christianese slogan that I grew up hearing. I saw it on the bumper stickers. I saw it on the t-shirts. You can probably finish it after I start it. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And in that slogan, the idea there is that religion is synonymous with legalism. It communicates something that is works-based or something that is rules-based. And we want to emphasize, man, Christianity is about a personal relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. So we don't like the word religion in the church, but we don't like it very much outside of the church either. Because a 2017 Gallup poll now showed that 27% of American adults identify as spiritual, but not religious. One in every four. I'm okay with the concept of spirituality. I'm not okay with the concept of religion or being religious. And again, religion has become synonymous with something that is works-based, something that is legalistic, where spirituality is, is more subjective and it's less organized. And listen, I can sympathize with both of those sentiments. I know what people mean and I'm sympathetic with that idea. But is it possible that we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater a little bit? Because we're gonna study two verses this morning. And in these two verses, James uses the word religion three times in a very positive sense. And all it simply means for James is the way that we live our lives before God. It means the way that we live our lives in our faith before the Lord. And what James is asking is what does pure and undefiled religion before God look like? And this brings us back to the central theme of the book of James, that authentic religion will demonstrate itself in our lives. So let me give you the main point of my sermon right up front this morning. Pure religion will demonstrate itself in our words, in our care for the helpless, and our personal purity. So with this in mind, let's read these verses together. James 1, verses 26 and 27. The word of God says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So my assignment this morning was actually to preach from verse 19 all the way down to verse 27. Nate, why are you skipping so much? Because if you were here in January, you probably remember that one of our elders, Brian Briggs, preached an excellent sermon on James 1, verses 19 through 25. If you're on our Coastal Gloucester Facebook group, you know, I posted it on there this week. So if you need a refresher, you can go in the app. You can find that sermon. If you're not on the Facebook group, shame on you. Uh, just type in Coastal Gloucester on Facebook and join the group. Uh, but anyway... You can find that sermon. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it or need a refresher. But I didn't feel the need to re-preach what he just did so well five months ago. So we're just gonna focus on verses 26 and 27 this morning. But in order to understand verses 26 and 27, you guessed it. We need to go back and just briefly recap verses 19 and 25 because context is king. So verse 19, let's read this together. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So super quick recap of these verses. James is talking about how we respond to the word of God. When we hear God's word, how do we react? And he's saying we need to be quick to hear what it says. We need to be slow to speak in response. And we need to be slow to react with anger. While this principle certainly applies more broadly in context, it's referring to how we receive God's word. He's saying this kind of reactive, defensive anger to God's word cannot produce God's righteousness in us. So we need to put away the sin in our lives so that we can receive the word. But he goes on to say, it's not good enough just to hear the word. We need to do what it says. This is very practical James for you. He's saying, if you hear the word and don't do what it says, you're like a guy who looks in a mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's useless. It's useless to just hear the word and not do what it says. Instead, we will be blessed in our lives if we look into God's word and then we walk in obedience to what it says. And it's within this context that we get these two verses, James 1, 26 and 27. James is showing us what it looks like to be a doer of the word in these verses. This is what it looks like to be a doer of the word. But he's also anticipating what is to come in the rest of this letter. You could think of these two verses as like a thesis statement for the book of James because he gives us three points and each of these three points he's going to unpack in much greater detail later in the letter. Let me give you examples. He starts with talking about controlling your tongue in verse 26. He's gonna devote almost an entire chapter, chapter three to controlling your tongue. He talks next about caring for the helpless, right? Visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. The whole of chapter two, he's gonna talk about caring for the helpless. And then he talks about being unstained from the world in, in verse 27. Again, chapter four, he's gonna talk a lot about worldliness. So you could think of these two verses as the thesis statement of James. So with all of that background in mind, let's get into it now. Let's study verse 26. And it begins with a command to control your tongue. James is saying, Pure religion is when you control your tongue. Let's look at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Yeah, this, it doesn't really require a lot of deep study. You know, you don't have to go to the Greek to know what James is talking about here. He's really straight up, isn't he? He's saying, listen, if you think you're a religious person, all right, I get it. If you think you're a spiritual person, if you think you're a Christian and you can't quit running your mouth, then your spirituality, your Christianity, it's useless. That's what James is saying. He's very blunt. He says, if you don't bridle your tongue. Anybody ride horses? A couple of you guys, okay. I can't, because I'm really clumsy. 
I, I will fall off, I promise. I never tried, I ain't gonna try. But listen, so I, but I know enough to Google what a bridle is. And I know it's the piece, it's the headgear, right? That goes on the head of the horse to control the direction of where you're going when you're riding on the horse. In the same way, he's saying, just like you need to put a bridle on a horse to control the direction of where you're going, you've got to bridle your tongue. You've got to learn how to control the direction of your tongue. And now James's older brother, Jesus, Jesus, taught us something really important about the tongue. In Matthew chapter 12, this is what Jesus said. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? And this next sentence is so important. Take this in. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What Jesus is saying here is that when we have issues with controlling our tongue, what we really at a fundamental level have is an issue controlling our heart. Communication problems reveal heart problems. And I'm really convicted by this quote from Paul Tripp. Listen to this. He writes, have you ever said, oops, I didn't mean to say that. Anybody? Just me? If you ever said, oops, I didn't mean to say that. He writes, often it would be more accurate to say, I'm sorry I said what I meant. <laughs> Vody Bakum often says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch right? I'm sorry I said what I meant. And here's why. If the thought, attitude, desire, emotion, or purpose hadn't been in your heart, it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. Jesus teaches us that your mouth is the overflow of your heart. And so when there's something in our hearts that we don't deal with before the Lord, rest assured, it will eventually make its way out of your mouth. That's why we sin with our mouth when there's something in our heart that we're not dealing with. There are certain sins that we think of as sins of the heart, things like jealousy, things like selfishness, things like anger, things like lust and pride and greed and fear, and the list goes on and on. And we think, man, no one can see that. That's just in my heart. But rest assured, if you let those things fester in your heart, they will come out of your mouth and they will wreak havoc in your relationships. So how can we do this? This is the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? Controlling your tongue. This is much easier said than done. How can we learn how to control our tongues? Let me give you four things here. First of all, the first and most important step is to repent of the heart attitudes that lead to uncontrolled speech. Repent of the attitudes of the heart. It's what we just talked about. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're struggling with speech in one way or another, often the most important step is to deal with the sin that's leading to it. So you gotta do some self-examination. Man, why do I blow up with anger in my spouse? Is there something in my heart, some, some bitterness, some resentment, some anger, some jealousy, some selfish desire that I was not being met that I need to deal with that first? You see what I'm saying? You gotta deal with the desire of the heart first. Repent of the heart attitude first. Next, we need to learn how to show restraint. We control the tongue by showing restraint. You know, there's a, there's a more direct way of saying it. I'll say it the more polite way. 
Uh, we need to learn how to be quiet, right? It says, it says in Proverbs, there's two, I got a lot of Proverbs for you. These ones aren't in the notes, uh, but it says in back-to-back Proverbs, one of them says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. The next one says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So do I answer the fool or do I not answer the fool, right? It takes wisdom. And part of the first step in wisdom when it comes to controlling our tongue is knowing when to speak and when to be silent. But the Proverbs tell us that way more often than we think, the best course of action is to be quiet. This is what it says in Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. I love that. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I mean, this is just a math problem, right? The more you talk, the greater percentage chance there is that you're going to say something dumb. Uh, Preachers be warned. I mean, uh, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. And we might think, okay, Nate, I get it. Words are many, transgression is not lacking. But if it's in here, it might as well come out out here, right? Better out than in. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to vent. All right, Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now listen, yes, there is a time and a place with trusted friends to open up about what's going on in your heart and to vent, so to speak. I'm not saying it's not. But man, more often than not, we use that as an excuse to unload on people, right? And there's wisdom in showing restraint and quietly holding it back. And by the way, in, 20, in the 21st century, It's not just control your tongue. If James were writing this letter today, it would also be control your typing. (laughs) This applies to social media, doesn't it? There are many times where it's better to just not comment and keep scrolling. We need, more than anything else, to learn how to love listening more than we love talking. We need to fall in love with listening. Pastor David, I've heard him say it so many times. Pastor David would always say, God gave you two ears and one mouth You ought to use them in that proportion. We need to learn how to love listening, how to love understanding more than we love speaking. Another proverb for you, Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You ever been in a conversation with someone and it's obvious they're not listening. They're just waiting for you to stop so they can talk. You're mid-sentence and they're like, they're just on the edge of their seat. They're ready to interject. And like, you ain't listening to a thing I'm saying. You just want me to stop so you can start. We've got to learn how to love listening. Husbands in the room, and I'm speaking mostly to me. (laughs) The one thing that will improve your marriage almost overnight will be if we become better listeners. All the ladies said, amen. Right? That, That will improve your marriage almost overnight if we learn how to be better listeners. It's so important. So we need to learn how to show restraint. I got to move more quickly. Next, we need to learn how to consider the content when it comes to controlling our tongues. We got to consider the content. Am I speaking out of a concern to edify, encourage, or challenge someone to be more like Jesus? Or am I speaking out of a desire to get my own way? Think about Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul is saying you need to put off talk that is corrupting, that is corrosive, that is hurtful. Things like gossip and name calling and foul language and dirty jokes or whatever it might be. We need to put that off. We need to put on 
talk that builds other people up, talk that is in season, that fits the occasion, that encourages, and yes, sometimes even lovingly confronts and rebukes when necessary. And we do that because it gives grace to those who hear. We can be instruments of God's grace. And here's an important point. I feel like I've been going after the talkers so far, right? I've been going after the extroverts. And some of the introverts might think, okay, good, I'm off the hook, <laughs> right? Because I don't talk that much, I must be good at controlling my tongue, right? Well, it's not just what you don't say, it's also what you say. And it's really important for us to understand that sometimes we sin not only by what we say, but by failing to say what we need to say. And there can be moments where we let fear or whatever else hold us back from saying what God wants us to say in that moment. Good example, evangelism. Anybody else guilty? These are opportunities that we miss. So we need to consider the content and we need to ask God for the wisdom to know when to speak and when to be silent. Last point here, watch your tone. You don't need me to tell you that so much of communication is so much more than just the words we use. It's the body language, it's the tone, it's the time and place that the conversation takes place in. And I think we need to consider those things. I mean, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Be mindful of this when you're talking with people. This is a part of having self-control in your speech. So this is the first aspect that James gives us of pure religion. It is controlling the tongue. But in verse 27, he goes on to give us two other very important aspects of pure religion. Let's look at verse 27 and see what it is. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I have summarized those two things that he gives us as care for the helpless, as care for the helpless, and also as pursuing personal purity. And I love, I just love that James put these two things together in the same verse side by side. And here's why. I think that we have a tendency in the evangelical world to almost create a false dichotomy between these two, to create a false dichotomy between compassionate care for others on the one hand and pursuing personal moral purity on the other hand. Here's what I mean by that. There are some people who would see the defining mark of Christianity as compassion for others, as feeding the poor, as social justice, as activism, and these sorts of things. There are others who would say, no, 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 the defining mark of Christianity is our purity. It is the things that we avoid. It is avoiding the influence of worldliness. And I think that what James is doing here is refusing to allow us to pick between the two, refusing to allow us to pit these two things against each other. But rather what he's saying is that pure religion is both what we do and what we avoid. It is both the people that we reach out to in love. It is also us pursuing righteousness personally in our lives. It is being in the world in order to love and serve the people in it, but not being of the world, not being influenced by the world or by the sinful culture in which we live. I love the way that Craig Blomberg put it. He said, the true outworking of a life of faith, personally and ecclesiastically, that just means in the church, clearly requires both. That is social action and moral purity. Doing good, even in the name of Jesus, will bring few to Christ when others see no inward transformation in those reaching out to them. 
Conversely, the most pious, moral believers who refuse to help the needy of the world will often find their attempts to convince others of Jesus's love falling on deaf ears. That's really important, y'all. What he's saying is, as believers, it is both us reaching out in love and serving other people and the inward transformation that Jesus does in us. We can't pick. We need both. And they both serve each other. Think about it this way. Doug Wilson has used this illustration in another context, but I think I can adapt it here and it's helpful. Imagine you're on a boat uh, and you're riding on the boat and you see a person a distance away drowning. Now, the Christian who is overly concerned about purity at the expense of compassion would look at that person and go, oh man, someone's drowning. But listen, I don't really, I'm not a great swimmer. I really don't think I'll be able to help them. I might drown if I jump in and not even just drowning. These are new clothes. Like I don't really wanna get wet. So listen, I'll pray for you. Uh, I might even donate to the uh, rescue fund, but I'm not able, I can't help you. I'm sorry. The Christian who's uh, concerned about compassion at the expense of purity will dive in head first swim over to this person and grab them and say, I'm here to save you. Then turn around to see the boat driving away. Then they're both gonna drown. If I could now keep going with this metaphor, what we need to do is throw in the life preserver of the gospel and drag them back onto the boat. Our goal is to reach out and love and serve people in the world without being stained by the world. That is our mission. That is what we have to do. And so with all of that in mind, let's take a look at each of these and see just how we can do that. First, let's see our calling to care for the helpless. To care for the helpless. James wrote, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So first of all, I love the way he describes God in this verse. There's so many different titles of God in scripture, names for God. Why did he choose this one? Why did he choose to highlight the fatherhood of God in this verse? Because he's talking about the perfect heavenly father's care for those who don't have an earthly father, right? He's saying the care that God the father has for orphans and for widows. He says pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit orphans and widows. This is stronger language than what we typically mean by visit. It's not just drop by for a chat, The word in the original language is the same word from which we get the idea of an overseer. The idea is that we are watching out for orphans and widows. We are caring for them. And in this culture, it's no wonder he chose these two groups because they were the most vulnerable. They were the most helpless. In uh, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was no life insurance. There were no welfare programs. In a patriarchal society without a man as the provider, the women and children were often helpless. And this is why throughout the Bible, God shows a special care and concern for widows and orphans. This is what he says in Exodus chapter 22. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Was God playing around about that? Let's keep reading. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. No, God was not playing around about this. God has a special care and concern for those who are the most vulnerable and the most helpless. And this continues into the New Testament. I mean, think about it. Acts chapter six, why were deacons instituted in the first place? To care for the widows, 
You go over to the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's advice to a young pastor. There's almost an entire chapter, 1 Timothy 5, devoted to regulating the care for the widows in the church community. What this shows us is that God has a special concern for those who are vulnerable, and he expects his church to share that concern. He expects us to love and to serve those who are vulnerable as well. And if we don't, he says our religion is worthless. So how do we do this? Galatians 6.10 says, do good to everyone, especially those to the household of God. We have a responsibility to all who are in need, but especially to those who are in the family of God. So let me start by asking this. What about in your life? Who are the people in your life that you feel even now God putting a burden on your heart? Someone that you know has a need that you can reach out to in love. You know, it's so easy because we all are busy. We all have issues. We all have money issues and family issues and whatever else. I get that. It's so easy to become so focused on our own junk that we, we're blind to the needs of everyone around us. Pray that God would open your eyes to someone who you can love and serve this week who's in need. But what about us as a church family? Who are the vulnerable and the helpless that we can reach out to as a church? There's a lot of different groups we could talk about, guys. I mean, let's start at the very earliest. What about the unborn? Probably the most vulnerable group of people in our society, given that we live in a nation that has murdered millions of babies in the womb. That's why at Coastal, we're so passionate about organizations like CareNet, crisis pregnancy centers that want to love and come alongside and serve pregnant women and their unborn children. Guys, we could talk about caring for the elderly. You know, we live in a society that idolizes youth, and so often the elderly feel like they've been put out to pasture and that there's no one who cares for them. We could talk about, as this text does, literally orphans and widows, those who have lost a parent or lost a spouse and are in need of the love and care and compassion and support that the church can offer. But can I suggest one other group that has been laid on our hearts in our church family lately? You know, I was having a conversation a couple of months ago with uh, a church member who's a doctor in the community, and that might give it away, um, but uh, so we were talking about, all right, how can we reach out to our community? Who are the people in our community that we can love and that we can serve? And I asked him, well, as a doctor, from your vantage point, what do you see as a need in our community? He said, man, all the time, these single moms come in with their kids. They're exhausted. They're struggling financially, and they just need help. They need love. They need support. I was just talking to someone after the first service who came up like, yes. Finally, like someone is saying, this is awesome. I'm so excited. How can I help? But listen, guys, I believe that God has a special heart for orphans and widows. And that doesn't just mean, it certainly does mean, but it can mean more than just a situation where the spouse has died. There are a lot of single parents in our nation and in our community that need our help. Let me give you some statistics. There are 18 million single parent households in the United States. 15 million of those are single moms. In Gloucester County, 23% of the households with children are single parent households. So when you're driving home today, when you're driving by houses that have kids in it, one in every four is gonna be a single parent household. Is it possible that God is laying this on our hearts as a church family because this is an open door for us to reach out and love to those who are vulnerable in our community? 
You know, Matt Chandler is fond of saying the phrase, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And I think scripture is clear that the ideal is a household that has a mom and a dad. But when that is not possible for one reason or another, isn't the church supposed to be the abounding grace of God in their life? Can't we be the hands and feet of Christ, instruments of his grace to help fill in that gap, to love and to support? So listen, I don't have any big new ministry announcement this morning. I don't have an event coming up. I don't have a thing you can donate to. I don't have any of that this morning. What I do have is two things. I ask that you would dream with me and that you would pray with me. First of all, dream. What would it look like if we made it a part of our mission here at Coastal Gloucester to reach out to single parents and their children and try to love them and support them with the compassionate care of the gospel? And second, would you pray with me? Would you pray that God would open the door and pray for opportunities for us to do this? And I really hope in the coming months that I'll have more to share with you and that we can be talking more about this. I just wanted to bring this to us this morning from this text and show you that this has been on our hearts. This is something we're praying about so that you all could be praying with us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's wrap up this morning with our last point this morning. So we've talked about how pure religion is controlling your tongue. It is caring for the helpless. Then finally, pure religion means pursuing personal purity. Pursuing personal purity. He says in verse 27, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's so important that this point follows the first point for this reason. We can't help the world if we're like the world. As Christians, we cannot help the world if we're not like the world because we'll have nothing to offer them. You say to someone, hey, come to Jesus and he'll change your life. Why? He hasn't changed yours. If we look just like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. This is why it is so important as believers that we pursue righteousness, that we pursue holiness in our lives. It is not just an optional add-on for really spiritual Christians who are looking for a challenge. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the calling that God has on your life to pursue personal purity. And if we look like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. This is why, ironically enough, churches that are obsessed with being relevant in the eyes of the world eventually become irrelevant. Because the world has no need for a church that is just parroting the same things that they're already saying. That is just doing the things that they're already doing. The world might not like us, but they need us when we're different, when we are pursuing purity. This is another thing that James makes clear that God is taking so seriously that we would not be influenced by the sinful culture, but that we would be different. He even calls it adultery, spiritual adultery for us to be like the world. James 4.4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's harsh language. That's strong. But he's saying very seriously, we are to reach out in the world with love and care and concern and with the gospel without becoming stained by the world because doing that is spiritual adultery. This is a deeply personal command. He says it is to keep one's self unstained from the world. It means that we each as believers have a personal responsibility to keep our hearts, to keep our minds, to keep our behaviors from being influenced by the sinful world in which we live. And that can be summed up in one word. It's the word different. We're called to be different. 
We're different in the way that we speak, as we've already talked about. We're different in the way that we dress. We're different in the way that we behave. We're different in the entertainment that we consume. We are called to be different. We're called to adopt a different worldview than the culture in which we live. We're called to stand firm on what God's word says, even when it's not popular, on issues like gender and sexuality. We're called to be different. And why? Why do we wanna be different from the world? Why do we want to be unstained from the world? It's not so that we can condemn the world, it's because we love the world. We do that because we wanna reach them with the gospel and we know that unless we take holiness seriously, that's not possible. Let me tell you, the greatest apologetic for the truth of the gospel is your life being transformed. That's the greatest proof that people will ever see that the gospel is true. When it takes a sinner, a person whose life has been sold under sin, a person who has been a slave to the evil one is now walking in the peace and the freedom and the holiness that Jesus alone can bring. Your holiness is proof that Jesus really does change everything. When we live that out in our lives, it is proof to the world that the gospel is true and that Jesus is still in the life-changing business. So we do this not to condemn the world, but in order to love the world and show them the power of the gospel. So that's why this all matters. That's why we commit ourselves to a religion that is pure and undefiled before God, because we have a mission to be God's ambassadors in this world. So I have a few takeaways for you this morning. And, and these are really diagnostic questions that I want us to use that are convicting to me and I hope are for you as well, that we can do some business with God this afternoon. Let's start by asking this question. What do you need to say? What is God calling you to say? How can you control your tongue and use your words to honor the Lord this week? Now, don't raise your hand unless you're super bold, uh, but let's, let's just do a thought experiment. Think back to the last seven days. So from last Sunday to today, how many of you can honestly say, there is not one thing I said this last week that I would not take back if I had the chance? I completely and perfectly controlled my tongue. I spoke up every time I needed to speak up. I kept my mouth shut every time I should have kept my mouth shut. Anybody? If you raise your hand, we're talking about lying next week. Because <laughs> nobody, we all fail in this area. He's gonna say in James 3, if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect person, is what he says. Because no one can do this. We all fail in this area. But what he is inviting us into is using our words that honor God. He says, your words are an overflow of your heart. So here's the invitation. Repent of sinful ways of speaking that tear others down. And instead, by trusting in Jesus Christ and following his example by faith, use words that honor God and encourage and build up and edify other people. We're made in the image of a God who speaks. I love that. When you start reading Genesis 1, what's one of the first things you learn about God? That he's a God who speaks, right? Then God said. In the same way, he made us as human beings in his image who also speak. And so our words have power. Let's use them for the glory of God and for the good of other people. So first, what do you need to say? Second, who do you need to love? God has given us a responsibility and a calling to care for people who are vulnerable. 
to care for people who are helpless. So I want you to do some heart searching. Think about your workplace, your neighborhood, even our church family, your small group. Who are the people that you can reach out to in love and in service this week? Think about practical ways that you can do just that. So who do you need to love? Third, what do you need to avoid? He's called us to keep ourselves unstained from the world to pursue purity in our lives. And if we all were to do some honest self-examination in our hearts, I think we could all find ways that our thinking and our desires and our values have been shaped more by the sinful culture in which we live than the values of God's kingdom. Perhaps it's entertainment. We're consuming entertainment that is pulling our hearts more toward worldliness and further away from a heart devoted to the Lord. Perhaps it's the way that we speak to circle back, the way that we speak at work. Perhaps it's the way that we use our money or spend our time that reflects the values of the sinful world rather than the values of God's kingdom. Ask the Lord to show you what are the things in my life that I need to avoid for the glory of God. Final point, and perhaps the most important point in this sermon is this. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. And a sermon like this that is very practical, has a lot of commands, a lot of imperatives, my concern is always that it will be understood moralistically, and that is not my heart. If you walk out of here today thinking, I just need to go and try harder and be a good person, and then God will love me, then I have failed as a preacher of the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not try harder to be a good person. Because listen, none of us can do this. Let's just be real. We just talked about it with the tongue thing. We can't even do it for a week. None of us can do this perfectly. None of us can control our tongue perfectly. None of us have had a perfect care and compassion for those who are helpless perfectly. None of us have kept ourselves unstained from the world. We are all guilty. So what we need is a savior. We need a savior who always perfectly and completely controlled his tongue. One who even when he was being crucified kept his mouth shut like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We need a savior who kept himself perfectly pure and unstained from the world. Unlike us, the one who is sinless in every way. We need a savior who reaches out and cares for the helpless because you know who the helpless are? You and me. Jesus reached out with love and care and compassion to save helpless sinners like you and me. And he went all the way down to a cross to do it. Jesus is the one who did all of this perfectly on our behalf. And it is by faith in him when we believe the gospel and we receive Jesus into our life and he fills us with his Holy Spirit that we are now enabled and empowered to really do this, to really live this out. It is only through faith in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we can begin to do this. And when God does that in your life, we will begin to make a difference in this world for the gospel. We will begin to truly be in the world, but not of the world. We will begin to be the lights in the world, the salt of the earth that Jesus has created us to be for his glory. And I believe that in Gloucester County, God wants to use this campus of Coastal to be just that in this community. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back now. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come to the front. And as always, if you have a prayer need, there's a burden on your heart. If you wanna talk about a relationship with Jesus, I'd like to invite you to come up and pray with one of these folks after the service or during this last song. 
But my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we walk with Jesus day by day, we will be empowered by him to have a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, that we would honor him with our lives and that we would be the representatives of Jesus wherever we go. Let's close with prayer. Father, we love you. We confess how deeply we need you. We confess how far we have fallen short in all of these areas, Lord, and how we don't deserve the love and the grace that you give us. Yet, Lord, you saved us when we could never have saved ourselves. You brought us into your family by your grace. And now you empower us day by day to live for you and to be a light for you in a dark and broken world. So Father, I pray that you would empower us, motivate us, challenge us, strengthen us to live for you even more today and this week as we go about our lives. Lord, help us to learn how to have self-control in the way that we speak. Give us a deeper compassion for those who are in need and give us ways that we can serve. Father, help us to avoid the influence of worldliness, but instead to pursue purity in our lives. Because Jesus, we just wanna glorify you. We wanna honor you. That is our heart's desire. So Lord, be honored in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close with singing this morning.